0: Hi, I'm Trevor Elio,
1: and I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world.
0: From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Our guest this week is writer, humanist, and self-described enthusiast, Ken Gordon. I met Ken a few years ago at a business innovation factory conference and was immediately drawn to his quick wit and authenticity. In fact, authenticity will be a big part of today's conversation. When I asked Ken for a topic, he naturally chose writing. He's been published by outlets like the Atlantic and the New York Times, and is a true believer in the power of writing.
2: But I think if you show kids early on that this is a lifelong skill, a lifelong skill that will ensure you're getting where you want to be in life, you're creating a path of meaningfulness in your life and happiness and professional fulfillment and everything else, showing them that this stuff isn't just an English class. What you'll
0: soon realize though, is nobody puts Ken in a corner as no job title can easily nail down what he brings to the Boston based innovation and design consultancy where he works. What Ken really cares about and what we impact in this conversation is how writing can serve as a tool for exploration and a portal for self-discovery. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as we did. On this week's episode, we are having Ken Gordon. He is EPAM Continuum's Principal Communications Specialist. So Ken, can you, can you break that down for us a little bit? What is that exactly?
2: Uh, well, here's what I do. I basically am content, conversation, and community building all at once, all the time. I believe in um, producing a message that's clear and vital and interesting out there into the world. I work with my colleagues to do the same. We go onto social media. We spread it around. We get other people talking. We create a dialogue out of it. And then from that, we build relationships, relationships with all kinds, with uh, people who might want to work with us, people who are thought leaders, professors, authors, And basically I'm I'm running a nonstop sort of intellectual dinner party all the time. I find interesting people and I engage and we go and we go as deep as we can and we see what can come of it. And that's my job.
0: Uh, I love the idea of using... content generation as a way to create connections between people maybe in different fields maybe with different areas of interest and the writing that you engage in the dinner party ends up becoming a shared space for you to you know launch projects or or launch ideas and uh, really kind of bring people together through the writing and content that you
2: produce. Yeah. A big part of my job is, is really weirdly being an enthusiast and I will listen to somebody and it doesn't matter where I'm at a wedding and I talk to them. I say, what do you do? Because five minutes later, we're going to figure out a content strategy for them for improving their business. Or if there's some, they're telling me some great new invention, we're going to figure out how to take that to the New York times, get it on the op-ed page. Um, I I want people who are doing cool things to get their story out there. And I'm, you know, most people, I just want to help them. And most people want to be helped. So one of the things that we always
0: ask our guests to do is to pick whatever concepts are most important or pivotal in their field and narrow down that list to 10 and then to three. So one of the reasons of many I was excited to have you on is the what you're describing is it doesn't sound like a like a concrete field. It is sort of this interweaving and leaving of all of these different uh, concepts and ideas. But it's writing sort of seems to be the entry point for those. So could you could you run us through that process? Um, I think it'd be really fascinating to see how you take these ideas and elements of writing and and incorporate them into all of these things that are, are seemingly happening in the professional and, and corporate worlds.
2: Well, I remember the, the most important one is definitely voice. Getting your voice right is, you know, absolutely key to writing. Uh, here we go. Voice, originality, editing, emotion, intelligence, composition, logic, honesty, and composition. And from those, uh, we narrowed them down to three which were honesty of voice, rigor of self-editing, and the clarity of composition. And that's sort of uh, where it's at. I think I do a workshop where I teach. Um, I know everybody hated their writing class when they were in college and those, those composition classes and rhetoric classes. So I, t- I took a cue from my uh, designer pals and I redesigned the writing workshop. And what it is, it becomes a, a happy hour. And and Julie, what we do is everybody comes in and everybody has beers and nachos and whatever else. It's on a Thursday afternoon at four o'clock. We take the room, we put couches around, we dim the lights and I put on jazz. Everybody socializes for 15 minutes before we've done anything and and gets really relaxed. Right. And um, part of the reason we do this is I want to I want to I want to drain the anxiety out of the room. And the anxiety out of writing before we get down to it. And then, and once everybody's chilled out, I have them all pull out their laptops. They pull up their official um, company bio. And I say, okay, let's look at these bios. I want everybody to look at their bio and look at the story you've told there. And I want you to pull those facts, those straightforward facts. And I want to tell one true story behind what you've said about yourself that you haven't put in there. Everybody goes, okay. Then I put a timer on the clock, and they have 20 minutes to tell me their first thoughts about this story. And they scribble away, and I put on Charlie Parker, and we jam on that for as long as it takes to get a first draft down there. When that's done, we have a little talk about the romantic idea of the first thought, best thought philosophy, that sort of romantic connection between your feelings and getting your voice down on the page. Everybody's done that, right? Once we've, once, we've, once we've got that around, everybody goes around and reads the room, and there are these amazing unprepared essays that people are sharing with their colleagues, personal stuff that they hadn't intended to tell anyone. And all of a sudden, we've, we, the, the community has gone like this to this, and everybody's pulled right into each other's lives very, very tightly, right? After that, I pull up, um, you know, Georgia Orwell's um Politics in the English Language, his famous essay about writing clear English. Then I pull out the six bullet points from the end of that about self-editing. And we take the, the, oh, and each piece is 300 words. We take those 300 words, we knock them down to 200 using Orwell as our guide. And I teach them basically about self-editing. And so between those two things, they go from that sort of getting your voice, recognizing your voice, capturing your voice, putting it down there, to cleaning it up and editing and being more concise and sort of presentationally ready. And then the uh, final part is uh, getting it out there to the public, which is basically the third part of it is after that group exercise where I develop that community of writers, I work with people one on one to sculpt that stuff. So it's not just the first draft, the first edit. It's like, okay, this is for public eyes. What, is it, what does it mean to write something for an audience, uh, a wider audience?
1: Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for taking us through that process. That sounds, I could see it mentally uh, sort of almost like this jazz lounge creation there. Um, and so, so what, you know, I can, I can infer a lot of ideas that you're trying to build up through that, but could you talk to us a little bit more about finding your authentic voice? Like for teachers who want to blog or, you know, of course, Trevor and I write a lot um, for teachers, maybe who teach students how to write, like, how, how do you do that? Can you tell us a little bit more?
2: I think well, it's, it's two things, really. One is that sort of provocation to getting to people to write without thinking about it too much, right? Stuff like giving them prompts in real time and getting people to sit down and write and giving them crazy assignments. That, that's sort of, jar- that's half of it. But the other half is recognizing um, the cliches that you're putting out there and the difference between something that you're really feeling and saying and your authentic words and the stuff that Orwell says has been put into motion and gummed together by someone else. You know, this this idea of knowing, of looking at, those drafts and saying what's real and what's from someone else and learning to discern those two things. So I talk a lot about this idea of the war on cliche. You know, when I'm working with someone, I'm like, okay, the cliche is our enemy. And it may be something that it may, this may be something you really felt, but if it's a cliche, it's not right. And learning to sort of um, uh, discern what is and isn't uh, authentic and original. And it's like it's it's not obvious. It's something you have to sort of attune yourself because so much of the things we say are eighty-seven percent cliches that we really have to figure that out.
1: Is it true that, that I, like what I'm thinking is, and I'm wondering if you think this is true or true or not true that to you authenticity means original, and it also means uh, almost feeling more than thinking. Sometimes
2: sometimes and uh, not, not absolutely but i but i I do think it's a good rubric for for um, real voices is getting to authenticity.
1: Just to sort of as a check, like, is this is this something that, you know, is, is said so much and unoriginal, then, then maybe it's not authentic.
2: That's right. And I think what you're saying about feelings, sometimes the feelings override that and say, no, what I really feel is this cliche thing. Or maybe <laughs> these <things laughs> cliches together mm-hmm. equals a one true thing. And it mm-hmm. could be. I mean, this, the tricky part is, and this is uh, absolutely true, authenticity is a problematic concept, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and, and I think in some ways, authenticity is what's authentic to you and what, what you feel is authentic, which is... Mm-hmm you know, hard to make a universal um, law out of that.
0: So one of the things that uh, Ken and I have had some conversations about is the the way that technology is affecting discourse and education. And I feel like in, in the world of technology, ubiquity sells more than authenticity um, in some instances. Uh, if you can put something into the world that is uh, watered down and accessible and kind of just this... Mass that anybody can kind of glom onto, um, it, it gains more traction. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's, that's good or healthy for, for the content that we consume. So, uh, I guess to form a question from that, how can we find our authentic voice when we are, we are, we are drowning in authenticity um, that is, is so frequently found on the internet?
2: I think if you're talking to students, particularly, I think you have to sort of understand that success is not a metrics game necessarily right? This is something you learn in the, in, the, in the world, right? In the content world. If all you're looking for is to get click-throughs and high numbers of whatevers, that does not mean you've succeeded from an editorial standpoint. And getting, especially if you're a literature teacher, this idea that editorial excellence does not necessarily correlate with big numbers of sales. Now, I don't know how you feel about selling your books, Julie. <laughs> and, I know, and, and, and we all want to do, you know, we, we all want people to buy our services and all that other stuff. And we want people to be coming to our classes. But really, There's something about an inherent excellence, editorial excellence, that is beyond that sort of quantified success thing. And you have to teach people about the idea of quality. You know, Robert Persig talks about quality in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, right? This is elusive concept of quality. I think it's really important for everybody, particularly students, and particularly students who are learning in the context of literature, to understand that there is Quality to be created on the page that's independent of what an audience thinks of it. They already know about audience because they grow up in social media. They already have been counting. They know that. That doesn't need to be taught. You need to teach them the antithesis of that. And I think that's a super important lesson for young people today because they are being taught the exact opposite. That's so
0: fascinating because so much of uh, the conversation right now uh, when it comes to writing instruction is to how can we make writing opportunities more authentic so they're writing to an audience. But you're kind of saying growing up in this, you know, social media-driven culture. That's all they do is produce produce content for other people to consume, as opposed to creating as as a means to explore oneself. And I think that that is something that is really missing from the way that we think and talk about writing in a lot of modern academic settings. Um, is is writing not just for an authentic audience, but to find one's own authenticity? And that's it's really powerful idea that you're that you're riffing on there.
2: I have a 17-year-old. We've just been through the college admissions process. We've written those crazy essays. And everything all the admissions officers say is like, we're looking for an authentic tone. We want you to sound like who you actually are. And so if you need a way to motivate high school kids to take this seriously, that, they're prepping for that essay by learning to cultivate their voice. And they're, you know, that's it. They're writing to themselves. They're writing for themselves, about themselves in a real way. Getting ready to produce that piece that will show that is, is, is I, to me, sort of a motivational, uh, real motivation for someone who needs to learn this stuff at 16 or 15.
1: Absolutely. And how, how great to, to use that as sort of a way in, in which we can harness this transition of adolescence between childhood and adulthood of finding out who you are writing. I love that idea of writing to explore who you are. And because I get what, you know, I, I like the, the people who are pushing right for an authentic audience, it's basically instead of the teacher. I think that's kind of the main point we're trying to make. Like, it not the teacher is not the sole audience, um, for this writing, but I love the idea to contrast that with, with write for an authentic audience who could be yourself. Um, and and I think that that's, that's really powerful. I think that's essential for kids as we're talking about here with, with the likes and, you know, there's so many kids who, who will admit that they take posts down from social media if they haven't had a had any likes in a certain amount of time or a certain amount of likes in a certain amount of time, they're checking, 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 and they'll just delete things from their profiles. If they don't have those clicks, those likes, those things. Um, and, and so we have to directly counter that narrative, I think for sure.
2: Absolutely. And you think about who they admire, the kids admire the people who follow their own compass. That's what it is. So maybe you, you'd line that up with their, their music hero of the day. Right, or they're, uh, you know, their person is really following their own lead and sort of even identifying people who are in uh, the heroes of the teen culture at the moment who are doing this and, and pointing them out as that, you know, something independent of literature, but someone they themselves look up to right this second because they follow their own voice.
1: That's excellent because that's something that Trevor and I are constantly sort of pushing English teachers to do is to uh, think outside the necessary, the genre that they're teaching. Because so often teachers will organize their curriculum around right now we're doing novels, right now we're doing short stories and they're sort of teach in that way. But if, if you teach conceptually, and in this case, we're exploring the concept of voice, which is essential. And and how cool would that be to explore the concept of voice through multi genres and and mediums? I think, yeah, it's awesome.
0: A lot of English curriculum is, is lacking a through line that makes it uh, authentic and accessible and relevant to students. Uh, we think about our curriculum as sort of like this linear journey through these various topics, as opposed to a way to sort of weave this tapestry that allows them to explore and, and gain access to their voice.
2: Here's a through line for you. Em- Whitman to Emerson to Kanye um, you know, this idea of being true to thy own self, you know what I mean? Like this American individualism, like the hell with what you think I'm going to say what I think you've got Dickinson, you've got uh, Thoreau, you've got Emerson, you've got Whitman, you've got Kanye West, you know, you've got a uh, Springsteen, whoever, you know, you like, there's a way of doing that. That can make perfect sense if you line up the pieces, right. And maybe you figure out which one has to come first in order to reach the kids. But you say, no, 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 this is it. This is, being real is is getting your voice, being successful is getting your voice, being happy is getting your voice. And then, you know, the, these are all things. And again, like even talking about the difference, uh, the, the happy person is the person who is saying who they actually are, who is getting to their own words and putting it out there is not necessarily the same thing as the successful person, right? Because if you say, well, Kanye is really an unhappy person, <laughs> even though he's true to himself, you're like, well, okay, but maybe that these other people who are actually doing it in a qualitative way the benefits, the qualitative benefits of sticking to who you're, you know, you actually are. And I, I think
0: that so much of it requires a, sort of a reexamination of, of why we teach what we teach. Like what, what is our goal? What does our us? What, what drives us? And that's something that I'm frequently asking myself is, you know, what is the purpose and function of, of reading and writing? Like, of course, those are skills that are, that are goals in and of themselves, but why do we write? Why do we read? Why do we compose? Why do we create? What are we getting out of? This What are we providing for others? And, and I think it's something that can get lost in the hustle and bustle of, of instruction and testing, and all those sort of systemic and structural realities. Uh, but I do think that you can still account for those things if you go back and spend a little time asking, okay, well, well where does this transfer after the final exam? How is this helping students make sense and make meaning of themselves in their world and if they can do that they can do it for a a question on an exam it's that that act of transferring their their understanding to all of these various fields Um, not doesn't just have to be the test and that's sort of like really uh on the more shallow end of the the transfer continuum so one of the things that i also would kind of want to explore going back to how you set up your workshop it sounds like this idea of, of connection, writing as a, as, a, as a conversation between writer and reader as, as a pretty pivotal part of your process, you know, being able to share our authentic self requires quite a bit of vulnerability. So I, I'm kind of curious how you, how you feel or what you think about that concept of uh, connection, conversation. How do you sort of bring these things together so people are comfortable sharing and exploring their authentic self?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think part of, again, like I said, I'm almost laying a trap for them to sort of inadvertently tell about themselves. You know, it's almost like the therapeutic moment where you say, okay, you've got, you've got this amount of time. Let's hear it. Go. And uh, you'd be surprised what comes out of that. I'm a huge believer in improvisation. I'm a, I'm a jazz pianist. I like to, I like to sort of push people to um, figure out what they can do in a given amount of time with a certain amount of parameters around, you know, their expressive moment. And I, I really believe by doing that, particularly in a group, because everybody's doing it once, it creates this community because you've survived the war of Mr. Gordon gave us this assignment. We had to tell a real truth about ourselves. And it, it really is the, um, I don't want to say gamification because I hate that word, but you're giving them some sort of creative uh, constraints to to work against. Let's call it the jazzification. You know that idea, like you're on the bandstand, like pushing people onto the bandstand and making a performative and a group performance, really, because half of it is writing, half of it is telling. You know, I think that's it. That's key to it is actually sharing right after. Do you know what I mean? Like you could probably do the same thing with like a high school yearbook. It's like, okay, let's look at your official bio. Now let's hear the story behind these in jokes you're telling your friend or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Taking a piece of official public information and then telling them as a group to tell the private story. I think the private and public stories clashing together. Yeah, I
1: think, you know, their their social media profile, or whatever they say is sort of their, their profile on Instagram or whatever it is. That's right. Um, it could be applied to your idea of, of, using people's bios on their web on the
2: website your finsta versus your insta you know what i mean and like let's 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 look at the gap between your finsta and your insta and like where is it tell me the story that's in the middle you know or whatever and but thinking about sort of the private and public narratives and sort of how we self-identify and and how to to ourselves and to our group and to the world and having those levels of identification a big i like to think a lot about sort of the the levels of social in our social media right? There's sort of social media, semi-social media, and anti-social media, and where you are in that continuum, and how those things changes, or do they change, and why, and having those kind of conversations by inviting people to do storytelling.
0: I love that idea of, of storytelling uh, sort of simultaneously being an individual act and a, a group and collective act, and sort of the, the relationship between those two sort of perspectives. It's funny that you mentioned the jazz thing, and one of the Outros of of our book, I I literally liken the way that we're talking about curriculum design to jazz, where you know you can't just give kids sheet music and expect them to become great jazz musicians. Uh, at the same time, they need to have some familiarity with with scales, and that sort of musical space becomes the shared area where you know I might be pl- I may be laying down a you know a bass line, and you might be doing you know guitar solo, but because we both speak the language of music, there's sort of like this this harmony that emerges from this very improvised process because we're we're speaking the same language. And and one of the problems that we think with curriculum is that people get very trapped in their their sort of disciplinary lexicon where it's like, no, I'm I'm a math instructor or I'm an English instructor or history, et cetera. And they, they they aren't looking at the music. They're looking at Mm -hmm. their instrument. And I think that that is one of the cool things about, uh, conceptual understanding is when you sort of generalize and abstract out of those very discipline specific ideas. You realize that you're talking about systems. You're talking about power. You're talking about conflict, change, energy, these, these sort of um, uh, musical undertones that are, are the baseline of of every discipline and every discipline sort of riffs on it in their own way. So that's, I love that idea of, of jazz and it's a metaphor I've been seeing um, in, in different places and spaces as, a uh, an analogy to get us to, to think and, and another thing I've heard you speak often about speaking of is uh, the power of, of metaphor and uh, analogies and sort of thinking about things in different ways because a, a lot of the learning transfer research and scholarship actually uses analogical thinking and reasoning as, as a means to test how it works and this really mm-hmm. famous study by Glick and Hollyoak so um, bring us your humanist uh, understanding and uh, ideas about metaphor I'd be curious to hear
2: um, metaphor is super duper powerful. You think about it. We, we were talking about hand washing, right? And someone we were, we were talking about. Well, how do you motivate people to you know wash their hands better? This was a couple of weeks ago before we all became experts at it, and. Um, and, you know, actually, some people at my uh, company, they actually created these uh, little prototypes, which these little Hello Kitty, you know, things with the waving arm. And they put them in bathrooms as a way to sort of get people to sort of come over and beckon them over to the hand-washing things. And the kitty would sing Jeopardy song, and meow, 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 whatever. But the, but the thing that came out of it, that whole brainstorm was like someone uh, came up with this metaphor, which is like, wash your hands like you've just been handling jalapenos and are about to put your contact lenses in. They'd seen this in in uh, somewhere in in Texas, but that metaphor right there was so much more powerful than any kind of argument you could have. You felt the pain of of screwing up and of doing that to yourself and your own eyes. That that, you know the the power inherent in that uh, analogy was just perfect.
1: That's so great. I'm from Louisiana, and so my sister-in-law posted, "Wash like you just went to a crawfish boil, and now you're gonna put your contacts in." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so that is, you know, I mean, it gets into your fingernails, like it gets everywhere. You have to wash your hands like seven yeah, yeah, times yeah. Uh, after you eat after you eat a, a big pot of boiled crawfish. So I love that analogy.
2: But the beautiful metaphor gets into your skin. You, mm-hmm. it, you know, you literally you feel it in your. own. And that's what a good metaphor does. And that's why that's so powerful. Um, it, it, it is the it's the direct line to your feelings when you can say X is Y and it's real and it's a good bridge. Um, you really cross it. And I think that's what that's that's why you need to learn to um, do that and to try different metaphors till you get to the right yeah. one.
1: That's right. Right. It isn't
2: not only, not everybody's a genius poet is going to do it, but if you stick long enough and you you think about what X and Y could be, you will eventually find something that's real.
1: And you can get really young kids to do it. I mean, we've, I've just had some incredible success. I have a grade two teacher. So these kids are seven years old and she asked them Why? um, would countries in Africa have, you know, they studied four different countries in Africa and they're like, Oh, you know, they're in a lot of ways, they're really different. They did some similarities and some differences. And they said Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, they're similar. And, you know, they pointed out a lot of the similarities. And she said, you know, how could it be that all these different countries on this continent, that's so huge, you know, have a similar culture. And one of the kids said, you know, it's like the United States, like we're a bunch of different States and, uh, we all like, football, whereas in Africa, a lot of people like soccer, you know, sort of making that more literal analogy. But another kid said, you know, it's kind of like, like different countries in one continent. It's almost like you can make a dollar out of four quarters or you could have like a dollar bill. I mean, this kid is seven years old and I just love that because if you, if you ask them to do it um, you know, they might struggle at first, but they're, they they get what a metaphor is. And Mm -hmm. it's just been really cool to see even really young kids be able to do that. And
0: how many problems are there right now in our world, socially, politically, economically, ecologically that are because people are, are trapped in the mental models that they use to make sense of things. They have one mode of thinking. David Epstein talks about this in range that, that sometimes having uh, expertise can actually sort of narrow and limit your ability to problem solve when there's a new, unpredictable, sort of emergent problem that you encounter. So one of our sort of uh, guiding principles is expertise is domain specific, but life is interdisciplinary. So I, what, what's powerful about metaphors and analogical thinking, I think, is it forces you to step outside of, of the normal way that you engage with, with information and to reframe or reconsider it in a different way.
2: Well, George, you know, George Steiner, the literary critic George Steiner used to say, who just died recently, the polyglot is a freer man. It's a freer man. And there's a freedom in having different uh, linguistic approaches to the same mode of existence and surrounding that with different perspectives. It's basically about creating different perspectives, right? And that the freedom that comes to you that happens when you have those different perspectives, and those are those are basically metaphorical. Yeah,
0: Lang- language is as both a prison and a key to to um, to trap and to unlock. You know, all these different situations makes me regret doing so poorly in Italian when I took it in, in college. I was it was a big it was a big no. I was gonna say no bueno in Italian, but I don't even know it. It was not good in Italian. <laughs> My Italian ancestors are looking down on me in shame right now.
1: Well, I'm, I like the, the, the jazz analogy is still sticking with me. It's so, also because I'm from Louisiana, but you know, the, the idea of the history of it is, is incredible because it is, this emerged sort of in the, in the going home after a gig that was more classical, um, where you were supposed to follow the rules and then, you know, you got paid doing that. And then jazz emerged actually from, from playing the instruments non-paid gigs that where you're just where you're just having fun and so the idea of of bringing play into classrooms into school makes sure students have those foundational elements and then you know really help really getting them to bust up the rules is something that we advocate with teachers a lot that that don't you know we want them to see what are the fundamental elements but not follow things in a rigid way that's
2: that's charlie parker he's like learn the rules learn the rules and and then forget that and play your <laughs> exactly. horn exactly that's what exactly. it is exactly
1: exactly yep i'm wondering um if you know you said these three these three concepts uh, really about you know about writing but it sounds like almost just communication in general of voice editing and self especially self editing and clarity i'm just wondering what What are some situations in which those are playing out today, like in your job or anything that you see in the news or whatever, like where is a situation in which the concepts of of voice editing and clarity are playing out?
2: Well, actually, we uh, Trevor and I were just today, because I happened to have a day off, I was reading an essay by William Gass, and it's this great, great essay. I'll share it with you. I shared it with Trevor. It's called On Talking to Oneself, and Gass is, is one of the great writers. Uh, he was one of the great writers of the 20th century. He died uh, recently, and I, he is just an unbelievable writer. And the reason why he matters is because of his voice. That is that is a voice unlike anyone else, and it's a voice he writes to be heard. He writes as though he were speaking. He's very self-conscious about it It makes it very clear in, in this particular essay. And what he says in the essay is like, to, and to talk to oneself requires endless rehearsals. Mm. You know, you've got it. This doesn't just come out of nowhere, he's saying. And, and some people might find this hypocritical because he says in a great part of the book he goes, well, go on if you want. Live on um, movie reviews, film reviews and telegraphies. No one will notice until you open your mouth and your soul falls out of your mouth like a can of corn from the shelf.
1: <laughs> wow. Right, full circle with with authenticity of yourself, and then the metaphor with the corn falling from the
2: shelf. It's <laughs> like you want to build yourself. It requires self editing, self consciousness, thinking about rehearsals, rehearsal and, and private sort of uh, discrimination between what words you will and will not use before you go into the ground. And you also want to respect yourself by having people know that you're a full, real person. And you're out there to have a real full, real conversation. My job is my life is all about here's who I actually am. Who actually are you? And I connect with people all the time on social media, in real life, at conferences. Well, it used to be at conferences, wherever.
1: <laughs> but speaking of what, a what an amazing time right now. I mean, people, people have time to reflect on themselves and who they are and what kind of life they want to live um, and who do, who do they want to be? So I think that's, that's perfect. I'm going to have to go look up that essay now. <laughs>
0: This is uh, to Julie's point. You know the, the the ways that we normally make sense of of ourselves or or ignore maybe ourselves is through the routine of our of our day to day life, right? Our job, right? Many many people receive their identity from from what they do, and that process has been interrupted. So, what better time than now to to rediscover or to discover maybe for the first time, you know, a, a sense of self and authenticity through writing for for people that have the ability to have time to do that. I think that's a really interesting idea.
2: Mm-hmm. And we're doing it all the time. Everybody is constantly expressing themselves in, in one form of social media or another. And it's like, you have to realize the meaning of what you're doing, what you're actually putting out there, what it sounds like and what you're saying about yourself. And I think most people don't because they treat it as a video game almost or as a dating, I mean, dating by other means or whatever it is. But if you, if you talk to your students and say, you know what you're having here is this great uh, possibility for self-education. And educating of others but you have to have the right mindset and here's what it means to learn about yourself when you're writing and here's what it means to learn about yourself in conversation you know what i mean and to really really impress upon them um the weightiness of, of self-expression and interaction with others is which is what this is and it's sort of like you know i i've always taught about um, martin buber's concept of i thou Right. And there's this, this idea where you're saying when you're in dialogue with someone, when you're really in dialogue with someone, when you're there to present who you actually are and for them to respond reciprocally with who they are, that's to boober, that's holiness. He's mm. like, forget about talking about God. What it is, is when you're connecting really with another person, that's what you want to be striving for. That's that's that dialogue is the holiness that we all should be working towards all the time. And when you do that, you can make it happen. And that's all reading and writing. Kids are, are so hungry
0: for that too. Um, uh, throughout the course of my year, I do all these sort of like dynamic projects. They're doing podcasts. They're acting out plays. Uh, they're doing a creative multimedia stuff. And, and without fail at the end of the year, they're like the best part of the year was sitting in a circle with people who I typically wouldn't hang out with or associate with and just having a meaningful conversation. And they talk about it like it's like this esoteric mystical thing because there are so few opportunities that they're given in their daily life to have an authentic, meaningful conversation. And, you know, obviously I want to, you know, want to make sure that they understand whatever elements or concepts that we're exploring in the book, but but really what I'm lit- looking for them to do is to give them that space to, to have that conversation and using literature as sort of an entry point or a portal um, to those things that are on their mind that they are dealing with, that they are thinking about. Uh, and I think that that's, it's something that is, that is so, so missing in a, in a lot of, academic settings, uh, just because we're we're trapped in the hustle bustle of of how can, how can the content be a a way that I can connect with, you know, someone in a deep personal level, because that vulnerability can be scary. But if I have this piece that I'm working on, or this text that we are reading, Mm -hmm. as sort of this liminal shared space, uh, that, you know, a bridge that we can both kind of put our vulnerabilities aside and walk one step at a time and, and share that, that meaningful dialogue. I think that that's, that's really powerful.
1: Definitely. I'm smelling a a sample lesson that you're going to write as a
2: result of this
1: podcast, Trevor, Um, because, yeah, absolutely that this young people are are super hungry for exploring sort of this writing for for self and this self exploration that we've been talking about. So I love it. I, I you've you've certainly opened my eyes to a lot of different things that now I'm going to think more about. So that's great. Thank you so much.
2: Cool. I got to say, my son is 15. He's recently got interested in like film. He's joined the film society, and is, you know, he started watching the Softy Brothers film. He saw Uncut Gems, and then he's just gone crazy after that. And so I was like, okay. well, He's like, well, what should I watch now, Dad? And I was like, we should watch my Dinner with Andre, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I don't know if you guys are fans of that. Some people hate it, but it's a, it's maybe one of the great, the greatest movie about dialogue. And it's these people having this, this sort of long. Really long, smart, authentic conversation about life, mm. and my son was just blown away. And you know, this is not skateboarding, which is what he's normally interested in. <laughs> in rap, but he right. was like, oh, this is this is something else. This is the best movie I've ever seen. And I, 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 I really think it's not just him. I think what you're saying, Trevor, that the hunger for real, authentic um dialogue is there for kids and just showing that them you should check it out and see if and just see if you can think of three kids in your class who would watch it because it's so powerful to see that that models what it looks like to people in a deep way to, you know talking about who they are and asking who they are that you know so much of what we do is so superficial fast and stupid that they need to know what it sounds like to have that kind of conversation and then to build their own conversations out from that
0: no, it's I mean some students who haven't had that experience. Uh, I I feel this with my seniors sometimes. who are, will, will read like a really uh, compelling text, and or, or they'll have the option to read whatever text that they that they want, and, uh, and we'll have like a discussion about it. And it, one of my students by the end of the year was like, I learned how to kind of have a conversation about stories and and meaningfully engage. And there was a point where I was like, you know, you know, I'm getting positive reviews about the class. You know, when I give surveys, and you know, we're doing okay, but. Uh, I'm not feeling that that energy. And they're like, we didn't really know how to have a conversation about a book. Like we didn't know like how to just sit in a circle and, and have a dialogue or come to some kind of shared meeting because it was always this transactional type experience. So I, I think that I was a little naive to think, you know, you just put kids in a circle and let them go. Like sometimes they need, they need that model. So I love that idea of, of seeing an example of what does authentic dialogue look like before just expecting them to be able to do it, you know, at th- at the drop of a hat.
2: I have a friend who's a high school English teacher and for one year for her final they did a Twitter final and they invited me to be part of it. And and basically my role there was to be the kind of wise ass, literary informed um, person that I am on Twitter with these kids and to teach mm. them that it's good to be smart and a little bit of a smart ass and to ask and to be the ask probing questions and to get in there and just to show them that this is what a professional some professionals actually do for a living and are informed by the very humanities that we're studying right now for this final. And this idea, right. Of mixing up maybe your assessments with like social media and outsiders, people like me and Adam, for example, could be, Awesome! I I love the idea. I'm in my head now. I'm telling you what I would do if I were working with you guys. I would love to see a Twitter chat where you invited me, Adam, the rest of the crew who's be on these podcasts, to have like a monthly conversation. I will hold you to it. that.
0: So be careful. You're treading on you're treading it's on dangerous ground. Love I'll do it. it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> love it.
2: I, I just I feel like that part of the value would be you're you're not just giving them something to listen to, but you're giving them uh, access to a community, an uh, intellectual community. And you're showing, you know, I mean, if I were a teacher trying to teach vulnerability and dialogue, I would walk out there and, and show them my own vulnerability. First word, you know, showing adults doing that is powerful because so much of what we do is hide our vo- vulnerability for kids, particularly um, when we're teachers and, and we're in figures of authority. And it's like, okay, you're saying, forget all that. Uh, I am, I've got my own vulnerabilities and I can overcome them and it's all right. And you can do it too. And, you know, you show what you've covered, you show uh, enough courage to show that and they'll go, oh, okay.
0: I feel like we should we should add vulnerability to our little uh, conceptual knapsack. So now we, we have uh, authenticity, vulnerability, self-editing, yeah. and clarity. So I think that four things for all of us to really consider and reflect upon as we, you know, continue on this uh, weird journey that is COVID life. Uh so any any parting uh <laughs> wisdom nuggets, Ken, before we wrap up.
2: No, you know, this is fun. I like this. It's uh I I I'm like I said, I'm a huge believer in networked education. I'm willing if you if you want to do something else with this, uh, you know, some kind of interactive thing. That's totally cool. And I would say, yeah, oh here's the thing, right? I tell this to my uh my colleagues, but I, I'll tell this to you guys and you can pass it on to the students, right? The thing is, when you engage in that sort of public um, educational mode using social media to learn, what you're doing really is you're making these experts into your colleagues. You're, become, you're, you're raising your hand saying, I am going to be a colleague. And the way you do this is twofold. And I, could, I wrote a piece about this I could share with you to give the details of it, but very quickly, it's like by reading something that somebody has published, right, and then asking a thoughtful, truly thoughtful question, based on your experience about what they've said, using their language as the primary text. And from that culling, uh, developing a question for them, uh, a really intelligent person, a really, uh, most people who have spent time really learning something are pedagogues. They want to teach more. So particularly someone who's written a book, let's say, and if someone, some, and it doesn't matter who it is, but even a kid asks a good, smart question about that, that person will get a good answer. And if it's a really good question, they'll start a dialogue. And what you're really doing by being that person's student informally is making them into your colleague. And you're raising yourself out of the realm of just being uh, a person who might have a quite, who might be thinking about something to someone who is thinking with them. Mm-hmm. And it's Love not an it. equivalence, but it is collegial. And it's like that willingness is how people get what they want in, their ter- in terms of their lives, and their studies, in their jobs. You pick who you want to work with teaching kids that kids that at 16 can get them exactly where they need to be throughout their lives because you pick who you do and do not want to work with and it's like it's giving them again i, th- I hear that i uh, freedom that's what we're talking about here the george steiner thing the polyglots of man the idea of making more choices and having better choices when you can nominate yourself to take the path you want and it's so it's not just reading and write, it's being in conversation with the writers, thinkers and and people who you really want to be in conversation with. But you do it by proving yourself worthy of that conversation. And you do that by think being thoughtful, being honest, being vulnerable and being everything else that I think we've talked about authentic.
1: Yeah, I think that's all wrapped up into the concept of uh, authenticity. I think you're just like totally unpacking and sharing for us what's involved in being authentic and communicating authentically is great.
2: I love teaching it to kids because I think about like just my, uh, I know when I deal with my colleagues who haven't written since they've been out of college or whatever, it's really problematic. But I think if you show kids early on that this is a lifelong skill, a lifelong skill that will Ensure you're getting where you want to be in life. You're creating a path of meaningfulness in your life and happiness and professional fulfillment and everything else, showing them that this stuff isn't just an English class. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. part of their American journey to sort of individualism and freedom. And
0: and that's, that's really at at the heart of our Mm -hmm. work is what we teach kids. They need to be able to transfer the farther they can take their knowledge, the more disparate the context, the better and more worthy that learning task is. Because what they are learning doesn't just apply in the classroom. It's not just the next test. It's not even just to the next academic discipline. It's, it's to life. So thank you, Ken, for, for walking us through That's this right. uh, this journey of authenticity. And uh, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire about hopping on a Twitter chat soon. So.
2: That's a cliche. I oh, no. Oh, guys, right. okay. I, I, th- I thought I had a great
0: <laughs> ending. I
2: just bought, I blew it. I blew it. <laughs> uh, my few were hot i'm sorry
1: <laughs> uh, all right. awesome awesome thank you so much it
2: was so great talking to this you this is fun i appreciate it thank you guys for sure have a good day all right bye guys bye, bye.
0: thanks for tuning in to this episode of conceptually speaking We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transfers.